So go ahead and start Hi, now. My, my name is Dave. I'm a compulsive overeater, anorexic, and bulimic. And I am, uh, uh, thank you for inviting me. This is my maiden call on my new phone from uh, Guadalajara, Mexico. So uh, I hope the connection remains good. Um, but, you know, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. Like many, um, uh, like many of us, I think my compulsive overeating, I came to find out, was started very early in my life with, um, I had a bipolar mother who, when she was in her, you know, normal state, was just, you know, loving, nurturing, caring, very soft, all that sort of thing. But when she got into her one, that one in a hundred, you know, manic, even less, so she would beat me as a toddler, like when I was two or three, until, um, Finally, one day, my father came home from work and found the, the yelps up and down the back of my legs where she beat me with a coat hanger. And uh, he got her into therapy and put a stop to all that. Uh, and I, uh, uh, But I suppressed all the memories of that until I was uh, worked with a therapist when I was 21, I think. But from that time till 21, I... Um, I completely, I had no idea what was driving my compulsive eating. I just, and I knew that I was powerless over it. I tried every possible thing to stop it, and I couldn't. So at the point where I began to realize how my, my early childhood history related to my, um, my eating, uh, I began to move towards realizing the first, the first steps. Um, I, uh, I volunteered with an outfit where um, I was working with mentally handicapped, and they would, uh, evenings there'd always be TV. And one of the shows uh, they watched regularly was my 600 pound self. And my observation from watching you know, that uh, reality show was in almost every instance with the, with the women, there had been early childhood sexual abuse. That was like almost in every case. And with the guys, sometimes sexual abuse, sometimes but more often physical abuse. And I think I was, uh, I fell, fell into that category. Um, my, uh, my eating first uh, began as just being overweight and through uh, you know, grade school and junior high. Uh, I, there came a time in the family's pictures where one year I was really kind of an ordinary looking size kid. And the next year's school picture, I had just ballooned up like, you know, my face had gone to pumpkin size and just in, in the one year time. And, and that had uh, coincided with my mother being institutionalized. She was gone from the home. And I think that should have triggered things. But eventually, uh, let's see. How much of this story do you need to be here tonight? Um, eventually, I got to where I uh, you know, was uh, weighing 110 pounds more than I am now. I've been maintaining a 110-pound weight loss for 20 years. Um, in my 20s, I was anorexic and bulimic uh, for 10 years, binge purging at least once or twice a day, and in Days when I was really uh, had a high stress situation, 
I would binge purge as many as 10 times in a day, just, you know, which, as you know, keeps you pretty busy. Um, and eventually I, you know, came to the realization, well, I came to a meeting finally, and uh, it took me a long time. Even with that condition, it took me a long time to be able to take the first step. And uh, my experience, I think like many, is that I came in and I worked the first three steps, and then I got stuck on the fourth step. And after a year, you saying, you know, like I, I'm stuck on the fourth step. I just, I can't seem to get started. But what I eventually came to realize is that I wasn't stuck on the fourth step. I was stuck on the first step. And and uh, until I could go back and I could recite the first three steps, which I recommend, that was an important uh, development for me at the point where I memorized the first three steps. I figured that I, I never had to have another wasted minute in my life. If I was stuck at a bus stop, whatever I was doing, if I had free air time in my head, I could just pray those first few steps. And when I apply that to my uh, everyday problems, I'll come up with some problem I'm having at work or in a relationship or whatever, and I've got to work the 12 steps on this. And then I'll start with the first step, and usually when I really pray myself in to the experience that I am powerless over the situation and that my life has become unmanageable because I quickly forget that. You know, I start out in the morning and I do my, you know, devotional, you know, the tapes with the uh, OA and the meditation and, and all that. And I'm right on the beam, you know, I'm, I'm into the, the steps. And, but by noon, God has died and left me in charge. And I'm just running the world or trying to run the world. So I, um, I discovered that I had, uh, you know, I was, bulimia was a very effective way of maintaining an anorexic, uh, you know, I guess the nature of dysmorphia is that it's never enough. I mean, I used to be able to look and I could count my ribs and I, I still, when I looked at myself in the, in the mirror, I saw my, you know, that little, you know, band of fat around my uh, middle of what was left of it. And it just, I just looked big to me. And that I never, uh, it was never enough. I could never lose enough. I got down to where I'm, you know, I'm five, you know, then five, seven, five, eight, and I weighed 120 pounds. I looked like, you know, like Auschwitz with a tan. I mean, like I was you know, on the outside looking, you know, active, sort of normal guy. But, of course, as you know, inside it was, you know, a, a disaster area. Um, so I began working the steps. And lo and behold, when I got a sponsor, I uh, and actually did my fourth step and gave it to him in the fifth step. That would have been... Uh, in June of, uh, gosh, I guess it would be 82. And I had my last bulimic episode in June of 82, so that's 42 years ago. But once I gave up the bulimia, you know, of course, then the uh, anorexia. And when the anorexia, you know, I, I stopped the, when I stopped the bulimia, I put on weight. 
because, of course, gloom is a very effective weight control tactic. So when I didn't have that anymore, I shot up to 100 and, uh, 263 pounds, and I'm now at 148, I think. So, but the, the thing that's really different is that over those years, I've gotten to the place where I, I simply don't think about food that much anymore. Uh, I go to, you know, in fact, when I, I weigh in like once a month, as is uh, recommended uh, in the literature, and if I find that I'm, you know, two or three pounds over, I will, you know, I'll just note that and admit that I'm powerless over that weight loss and my life is, is unmanageable. And I spend time every day meditating my way through those first three steps because, I, you know, so, uh, you know I, I start out with I'm powerless over food, my life has become unmanageable. But the, the part of the first step that I think is, is uh, you know, it, is paradoxical. I think when I came in, I thought the first step said, uh, I'm powerless over food, my life is unmanageable. And there's sort of the implication there that um, uh, when I recover, I'll have power over food and my life would be unmanageable. Uh, of course, that isn't what I found to be the case. Uh, that recovery for me has meant realizing that I'll always be powerless over food and that my life will always be unmanageable to some degree. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the, the impulse, you know, I think I deal with anxiety like a lot of compulsors. I deal with anxiety uh, as to control. That if I have enough control over my environment, my community, my you know, job, whatever it is, uh, that somehow I'm going to be safe and okay. Of course, that isn't how it works. And uh, being able to live with the feelings of anxiety and depression, which I still do, I, uh, it's a regular occurrence for me. I have a, what the shrink tells me is a genetic predisposition to organic depression, which basically means I'm susceptible to all the usual depressive triggers. But uh, I can also just look at one morning in my uh, you know, body, body delivers me a clinical depression. So, uh, for a long time, I thought that, you know, like somehow that meant I was damaged goods and I had to be able to, and yeah, it didn't work. I had to, after the third clinical depression, I, you know, took the doctor's orders, I'll be on antidepressants for the rest of my life. The, the first one that I took was Prozac. And I discovered that Prozac is an appetite enhancer. So I put it on weight under, uh, and that was really what put me up to the 263. And then I realized it was going to take something more than, than uh, exercise or meditation to get my weight back down. Oh, and can I, can I ask to have a five-minute warning and then a one-minute warning? Do you have like that sort of thing? Um, so I guess I'd, uh, I'd like to finish up with the uh, importance of the traditions. I arrived at the heretical position uh, that the traditions are actually more important to recovery than the steps. By which I mean, 
you know, the steps will always be the central activity of the fellowship and of personal recovery. And without the, the tradition, that work is not possible, I, I believe, for me. And so I think the analogy is, um, uh, one of them is that if, the traditions are like the glass fish bowl. And the fish swimming around in the bowl, they don't see the, you know, the, the glass. They may bump into it now and again, but they're busy swimming around in the pool. And if there is a, it is the traditions that create the container within which the step work can take place. So it's like, you know, we, without a, you know, what's a fish without a fishbowl? You know, if you're going to swim around doing the steps, you've got to have a container. And that's what the traditions provide through the fellowship. Or another analogy is, uh, you know, when you go out, you pick, uh, travel, drive out west, you'll come to the service station and there'll be a sign that says, you know, next service 78 uh, miles. So the analogy being, you know, that the, uh, the guy's putting along, he just barely, he, he pulls in there in the worst kind of shape. You know, this compulsive overeater has, you know, done in and they, so they push him into the garage, put him up in the lift, put the sponsor in the we fellows, you know, say, oh, look at this, uh, it's helping work out. Oh, his, his shock absorbers are really shot, and he's really got no, uh, he's got no carburetor mix. He's, uh, he's got a flat tire. His muffler, this guy, this guy is really loud. So they work through the steps with this guy. Finally, they, you know, bring him down off the rack. He puts off into the, the, uh, a long term, you know, down the happy road of destiny. Um, and so the analogy is you think, like in real life, if you're out driving out in the desert, there aren't mechanics just standing by the side of the road waiting for you to break down your car so they can work on it. The mechanics are out there because someone is running a gas station. And that's what the meetings are. The meetings are like the gas station. And what makes the gas station possible is the tradition so that someone's running uh you know the meeting is what provides the structure and a real mechanic you know the the owner or the business pays the mechanics and that's sort of the analogy for the tradition um i think it's a, another one is, the, is the, the traditions and the fellowship we have to be the basket in which the the, the steps are worked and so you know I think the, the steps will always be central and they're transformative and they take place within the context of the traditions. Um, I have a five-minute you know, reminder. Great, thank you. Um, the, uh, the thing about the, the steps is there is some version of each of the steps in most of the major religions. You know, all of them from, you know, the confession to inventory taking, all that exists. But what's unique to the 12-step program is the traditions. And those, you know, they started with the steps, but the traditions is just pure program. You know, it was like they, they you know, hammered those out in the trenches of hard experience of traditions. And they are, um, they are what I think makes recovery possible. You know, of course, the simple thing is we have to work the steps, but 
the reason uh, it, it has spread through the entire world in like, you know, what, 20, 30 seconds, 20, 30 years. Um, an example, I was, I was doing some work in El Salvador, way out in the, in the, uh, the boonies, and, you know, we're going along with one of these truck rides where the, the truck rocks back and forth almost as much as it goes forward. We're passing through these villages where, you know, it's like back huts, you know, and uh, hard labor. And, but there on this, on this rotting board on the outside of this little village, is in charcoal, it's written, you know, it's, on the, is, uh, you know, AA, you know, Tuesday sunset. But on, on that board is one of those aluminum metal AA um, symbols with the, with the three points. And you just wonder, how does that stuff get out there? Um, or, or for example, you can you can go in Paris. You can go to an English-speaking 12-step meeting. There's usually 10 or 12 a night in various places. You know, some of them are AA, some are OA. But one of the things my sponsor did best for me was he said, Dave, I'd like to. He had been in AA for 20 years of sobriety, and then he had 10 in uh, OA. And he said, Dave, I'd like you to go to some. Um, from AA meetings, I'd like you to see, you know, how, how it worked in the original program. So through that, I discovered that there, there are a, open AA meetings all over the place. There's never any excuse for me not to go to a meeting because wherever you live in, if you go online and look, there's going to be an open AA meeting within, you know, much closer it'll be a, an OA meeting. So I've been to thousands of AA meetings, and it, it really helps remind me that my addiction isn't, you know, isn't like, uh, sort of like alcohol, or kind of like heroin, or sort of like cocaine. It, you know, the, the, if you take a cocaine addict and an alcoholic and a sex addict and whatever, you put them in for 30 days, you bring them up to the same kind of condition. They're powerless over the substance and their lives have become unmanageable. And it's only through addressing, you know, and the problem with, you know, like heroin, you know you're in trouble uh, and uh, speed or whatever. But with heroin, uh, you know, there's a lot of overreach, you know, so it's, it's, it's easy to kind of, for me to think that, well, mine's a little different, you know, like I, it's not really that bad, but it is that bad. It's as, it's, it is as serious an addiction and as deadly an addiction as um, as any of them, heroin, whatever. Uh, and so, being able to realize that after you know forty some years of meetings and some recovery, that every day I, I have to work my way back up through those first three steps. And one and, minute reminder. And, and there, Invariably, I find that you know, I've, you know, it's not. If it were human nature to be able to get this and be done, I'd have done it. But it's not, you know. I and to the degree that I've been able to surrender to, you know, in the three steps. Well, let's see. They work together. They're in a in a, in a certain sequence for a reason, and. They have to be worked in that sequence because no one is going to admit their powers, or I was unable to admit my powers until I 
was felt somehow that there was a power greater than myself that was going to be able to catch me. And uh, and then the harder thing of taking and turning my will and life over the care of God. So the first three steps on forum. Thanks for listening.